Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This week on the show, we're talking about stuff. Did I do that right, Sean? Is that actually our intro? Or it's been so long. Yes, I, I believe this is the this is the stuff podcast. This is the stuff podcast. We have podcasted a little bit in the last like month or so, but it's been stuff you guys haven't heard yet. Uh, otherwise, yeah, the Weekly Stuff podcast has been gone for about four or five weeks here, while Sean and I have been busy with a million different things going on. Um, and today's just going to be kind of a catch-up episode, and also maybe a preview of some things to come. But yeah, it's it's been busy. I, Sean, you have been starting work up again because your semester started, right? Yes, I what I've now just finished the third week, or I guess like two and a half week of having students, and it's been about four and a half, almost five weeks since I was like back in the building doing work stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and then I had a bunch of stuff happen. I was supposed to get my wisdom teeth out two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, or something, and so my brother came into town. Uh, that like two days before the surgery, my dentist's office called, and my dentist had had a death in the family and had to leave the state. Uh, that makes it sound like he did it. No, he he left the state to go be with his family. Yeah. Um, and so that surgery didn't happen, but my brother was already here, so we just hung out. I just kind of took a vacation for a week, and I was going to be starting work the week after that. Uh, so my semester has started too. I'm TAing for Intro to Film here, so I had students back. This is our... We are having full-size lectures for the first time since the pandemic. So we have a full 120-student uh, lecture for Intro to Film, which is two TAs, each taking 60 students, plus the professor. A lot, lot of moving parts on that, so that's been fun. Um, and then I've been working on dissertation stuff and all sorts of things. And then you and I have been working behind the scenes on Japanimation Station. So brief word on that, just housekeeping. Japanimation Station Season 3, The Classic Adventures of Lupin Third, did wrap up last week with our final episode, which was, I think, a very fun one where we talked mm -hmm. about the crazy live-action Lupin movie. If you've never heard of it, you should listen to our episode because it's weird. Uh, the, the movie is called Strange Psychokinetic Strategy. Just to give you an idea, the movie has the word strange in its title. It is strange. Uh, and then we talked about all sorts of other stuff, including my um, exhaustive 40-slide PowerPoint on Lupin music that I did. All of that stuff you can listen to now. Sadly, I had such a busy summer in August that I didn't get to, I feel like, publicize this season as much as I wanted to. But I am very proud of it, and it is all out there now, all eight episodes, so people should get on that. Yes, and yeah, and if you wanted a completely exhaustive breakdown of uh, every single album for Lupin the Third, and, and ones that aren't even Lupin albums, but are like tangentially connected to Lupin, there's Jonathan made a whole PowerPoint presentation about it, so... It's that's, that's what it's the one of the most wild things I think we've done on that podcast because I did not I did, I knew that you wanted to do a music conversation I didn't know it was going to go that deep. Yeah, I sometimes I've I've been we've been recording season four and I've been in awe of your level of research, Sean. And then I remember, well, he hasn't done a PowerPoint yet. He hasn't done a forty slide PowerPoint yet. So you know, you're still not quite at my level. Yes, you, you definitely provoked me to go to go deeper for uh, our season four of Japanimation Station. Which has also formally been announced. It is premiering October 17th, so in just about two months here. And it is Japanimation Station's Kyoto Vacation. It's got a brand new name because we're talking all about Kyoto Animation, creators of such fine shows as Klanad and Suzumiya Haruhi and Violet Evergarden and Sound Euphonium. And we're reviewing all of those and more. 
And uh, it's even got a brand new theme song that my brother Thomas wrote for us uh, called Recapture that is that I did a video for. It is out now on the YouTube channel as a little bit of promotion. But yeah, we in no way planned to have a new theme song. But this one, this season was so big. And Thomas is also a big KyoAni fan. And he just did this. I didn't ask him. Mm. You didn't ask him. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. The yeah, the the new theme song is awesome. The video you edited is very cool, and it is like it's going to be such a fucking crazy huge season. Um, it is. You're still like we've recorded a lot of episodes for it, but we're still very very early in the scope yes. of the full season. Yeah, and the season this one is going to be a lot longer. It's planned right now to be 22 episodes. It's going to be airing in sort of six chunks because it's kind of like six mini seasons on different topics. So part one, for instance, is five episodes on all of the shows that KyoAni did based on the key visual novels, um, key visual arts, their visual novels like Air, Clannad, and Canon. Uh, and then, like, part two is going to be Suzumiya Haruhi and stuff like that. So it's going to be airing in chunks probably through at least the spring. It's going to be a long season, but it's going to be really, really good. Yes, and, and, and it has been very fun having those conversations, and I'm very excited to continue to get through that season. Absolutely. So that's the housekeeping. In terms of stuff, this this episode is just going to be the stuff i just we're just gonna shoot the shit and tell each other what we've been doing this is our how i spent my summer vacation episode or the very very end of my summer vacation episode as it were uh but in any case how the summer ended i think is what we're gonna do this week i did have one piece of news i wanted to talk about before we get into all of the stuff which is just a very sad piece of news that came out yesterday which is that arlene sorkin who was the original voice of harley quinn on batman the animated series um we say original, like original, original, originated the character. One of the very few people who can claim to have done this because there aren't a lot of original comic book characters in comic book adaptations. She is the most famous one. She passed away at the age of 67. Very sad. Um, and yet another member of that incredible ensemble who has gone too soon, like Kevin Conroy last year. Um, and I don't even... It, it's like, it's such an enormous performance and pop culture footprint. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, as you say, it's it's there's almost no I mean, there's no other example as big and there are very few other examples at all of this kind of thing of a character outside of the comic books being created that like takes on a complete life of their own. Right. So it's like not just Harley Quinn in the animated series. She got then transplanted back into the comic books um, and then is just kind of a ubiquitous piece of of not just Batman stuff, but just in general for like DC comics um, and like the DC animation brand and the DC films brand. Um, and it is, you know, so much of that has to do with her because not only is she the voice of the character, but like she was the inspiration of the character. She played a clown on a like 90s episode of um, Saturday Night Live. And that was the inspiration that the character came from in the first place for Paul Dini, the writer that wrote the character. Um, so it is, yeah, it's very sad and it's, it's just a moment to like reflect on how big she had of an influence on, you know, modern comic book and comic book related pop culture because Harley Quinn is like one of the big sensation characters, um, from that world in a world that like doesn't really produce new characters that hit into the mainstream and hasn't regularly since like the early seventies, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a big loss. It's a huge loss, and and one of our uh, listeners was replying to a tweet I made about this yesterday and just pointed out, like, she also is such a definitive version of Harley Quinn 
that like we're only now kind of starting to get versions of Harley that aren't just kind of Arlene Sorkin mm-hmm. like imitations. Like um, Kaylee Cuoco on the Harley Quinn show on HBO Max is doing something pretty different um and that that makes sense because that whole show is built around her and like a kind of newer take on harley quinn but even like margot robbie is clearly like she's doing the brooklyn accent it's a different kind of costuming but she's doing a lot of those same kind of choices and it's just it's there's not a lot of comic book characters because of the way they they originate that are that tied with a performer um Mm -hmm. to that degree like even in the popular consciousness maybe there's like a robert downey jr for iron man but there's plenty of comic book fans who could tell you seven other versions of iron man they could imagine right um it's kind of hard there's there's not seven versions of harley quinn to imagine it's arlene sorkin yes yeah as you say like the the voice of the character is so iconic and yeah the harley quinn cartoon is a different take but that whole cartoon is a completely different sort of beast right it is it is a comedy thing that is sort of you know meta referential and stuff like that so it is an r-rated which arlene sorkins was not (laughs) it was on saturday morning cartoon it was not on hbo yeah so it exists in a very different dimension but yeah anywhere else you know when i think it's tina strong plays her um after arlene sorkin left tara um, strong yeah yeah sorry tara strong um uh, after Arkham Asylum and so in like the Batman games it's her and she's in some of like the DC animated films I know and obviously she's just doing an Arlene Sorkin impression because it's like what else do you do like what they're you know it's it's the voice is so sort of keyed into the character you can't really uh, venture far away from that yeah and it's just it's a bummer you know I saw Mark Hamill tweet about this obviously because he worked with her extensively um, they often recorded voices together for Batman the Animated Series. And it is, I was just looking through it, so much of that cast is gone. Some of it because there were mm-hmm. some like character actors who were older to begin with, like Ephraim Zimbalist, who played Alfred. He died about 10 years ago. The guy who played Gordon died about 10 years ago. You've got Batman and Harley gone. It's It's a bummer. That show isn't really that old. It started airing around the time we were born, but like... Which I guess makes us old, but it is it is just really tragic because it's such an incredible pool of talent that show had, and it is sad that Mark Hamill is like kind of one of the last major figures from it standing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, so rest in peace, Arlene Sorkin, amazing stuff. Uh, but Sean, let's just do the stuff. What have you been up to? <laughs> a, a lot. Uh, yeah, like I because I can't even remember when. I was trying to think of this this morning. I don't remember what the fuck the last thing I talked about on Weekly Stuff because we've recorded like four podcasts since then, but it's all been Japanimation the station. Um, Our last episode of this show was Sheen Ultraman. Uh, so, and you hadn't finished Final Fantasy sixteen yet. I remember Okay. That. Okay. So I finished Final Fantasy sixteen. That was like a month ago. Um, yeah. I love that game. That game is great. Um, yeah, I think it finishes really strong. Like I know that people have some issues with the story um but i i don't really share those same criticisms i can't it's like you can't i can't get into the criticisms without spoiling stuff on that game um but there's some stuff that it does where i think i feel like some people kind of misread elements of that game i think some people think that game is trying to sort of comment on some thematic things that it's not really about because i think the game is fundamentally um an extended metaphor um, and I think some people kind of have missed the forest for the trees and uh, some of the online criticism I've seen. But I think if you look at that game very much, I've talked about it before as a sort of companion piece to Tales of Arise, which is another game that is effectively allegorical and is using its fantasy elements to tell a like 
broadly sort of like class-based story about trying to like overthrow the reins of oppression um, and using huge fantasy metaphor to express those ideas. Um, in the case of Tales of Rise, it is about literally like fighting the planet. Um, in Final Fantasy XVI, you fight God. Uh, I think that should surprise nobody about a JRPG is that you do in fact fight God at the end of that game. Um, but I think the way in which it expresses its ideas through big metaphor, um, the way it uses like the notion of magic and how that operates in the world, um, obviously as like a, a sort of fantasy for labor and energy. But like, you know, if you take it in a Marxist way, it's fundamentally a, a metaphor for labor and the lower class um, in that the and the way that they sort of position the godlike figure and the sort of hypocritical nature of the godlike villain that game. I really liked the ending a lot. Um, I thought it, it hit the right chord. There's some places in the game where, like, there are some characters, like, I wish Jill was a little bit more fully integrated in some elements in the sort of last act of that game, because it feels like that character, who's really cool, gets sidelined a bit too much. Um, but other than some stuff like that, I really, really liked uh, Final Fantasy XVI a hell of a lot. I still have not finished it. Um, it's been another month. I've been, I, I've just had so many other things going on. I was out of town for a little bit. I had my brother over for a week. And I just kind of fell off of it. I've been slowly picking away at it. I will say, I think after the Titan fight, which to me has been the peak of the game, I think mm -hmm. the pacing of that game goes really haywire. And I think it's like, it's extremely tight up to that point. And then I think it is much more scattershot, where I think there's parts that are phenomenal, like the next Akon fight. And then I think there's long stretches that are extremely tedious. And I think... It's my main, maybe if I had like just been on the like grind path with it and never kind of put it away for a few days here and there, I wouldn't feel this. I don't know. But it has been a little tough for me to fully commit back into it just because I do think it has the like length of a JRPG or at least a shorter JRPG. I've played 40 hours of it um, and I'm still not done. So it's in that 40 to 60 hour range. It does not, to me, have the same depth of mechanics as like a game of that length. I think the combat is very good, but I think it feels like something that should be in like a game the length of like a God of War or God of War Ragnarok, not a Final Fantasy game. Um, and like, so I like all of that. It just there are points where it feels a little elongated to me, and that's where I'm having a little trouble like finishing it. But I am generally still liking it. It is gorgeous. It has great, you know, writing and acting. And the music is obviously tremendous and all of that stuff. And I still enjoy the combat when I get to interact with it. I do think it also, sometimes outside of boss fights, I don't know if it gives you enough to do with the combat at various points. And that's also where I feel it's mechanically thin. But, you know, when I eventually finish it, hopefully we'll get to have a longer podcast discussion about all of this. Yeah, I think, like, the, the pacing definitely can be a little rough in places. I think, like, you can feel that this team, that some, like, elements of this team come from working on an MMO game because it's yes. got this, like, it's got a very set pace where it's, like, you each, the game can be very cleanly broken up into sections where it's, like, okay, you have your, I'm walking around the base, I talk to some people, you get the lay of the land of what's going on in the, the world. You sort of like establish the status quo for this section of the game. You take some side quests and all that. You then move to a new region in the game. You explore it a little bit. You get some side quests in that region. You meet a new group of characters in that specific region. Um, you Eventually you do that to the point where then it gives you um, the story sort of builds to a point where you are can load into a like long linear section that's like a basically an action game level that culminates in a giant boss fight um, that is like a huge crescendo and then it resets and you go back to the home base 
it's another set of go walk around to the characters. Um, and I do think, I wish the game, like, broke that pace up a little bit more here and there. But I, I, but I know, like, a lot of people had issues with that pace. It didn't really um, bother me too much. I think I kind of settled into it. Um, but I do think the game could have, like, benefited from doing some of the things that, like, a game like Red Dead Redemption 2 did, where Red Dead Redemption 2 hits a point where it, like, really radically disrupts the fundamental, like, formulaic structure of the the plot of something like that and it sort of blows a lot of the elements of that game sort of status quo up and final fantasy 16 never really goes quite that far and i think it would have benefited from being a little bit more radical in a couple of places but i think you just kind of feel there's this sort of steady that mmo like you gotta have a fundamental floor that the game can stand on and it feels like they never want to fully disrupt that i think the game would have benefited from that a little bit on the combat point like I think for me, the thing I really enjoyed about the combat was how free you are to experiment. Um, but if you don't push yourself to experiment, I think the combat can get stale. Um, but like I, I did have a lot of fun just going and completely like every time I went to a new major section of the game, I completely changed the way I played. Like I refunded all my skills I used. I swapped out my icons um, and tried out completely different stuff. And that kept the combat fresh. But the game never really sort of demands that you do that. Um, it's more kind of on the player to actively seek out, okay, I want to like, I want to just stop using the Phoenix skills and I want to use something else and see how that works because all the different icon skill sets like slot together and have synergy with each other in very different ways. And so there are a huge number of ways you can play the game. Um, it's just, there's not really scenarios in the game where it forces you to play one or another in order to clear because there's no like this is a character that the lightning skill set just isn't going to work on. That's not a thing, right? So it's like all the different play styles fundamentally can work equally well, broadly speaking, against any kind of enemy. It's just how well can you apply the synergy and the strategies of that set of skills. I, I agree with that, and that is how I've been playing. Part of it is I also just, again, like you will have in the kind of like downtime parts, you'll have some whole quest chains that just don't really have any combat, and like mm -hmm. maybe you'll see it running around the map. And I just, because that's kind of the only major gameplay element of the game, there's either walking around and hitting X to talk to people or combat, and that's it. That's kind of where I like feel the thinness in a way that I don't think other action games run into because they're not doing an MMO or JRPG structure around it. And I guess that's some of my issue. I, I'll admit, it's like a relatively minor issue. I would still recommend the game. Um, and I still want to finish it, and I'm still enjoying it, and I still, I, I have here, got in from Japan a few weeks ago, the uh, eight-disc ultimate soundtrack, which I'm very happy to have, because the music in this game is unfucking real uh, mm -hmm. and all of that I love, but it's just like, relatively, I think that's the thing that's been holding me back a little. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I did also, uh, on the side, I have been playing, speaking of Final Fantasy games, since you mentioned Final Fantasy, I did get Theatrhythm Final, I think maybe I did talk about this on an old I podcast. I think you talked about this, because yes, because I, I looked up okay. how to pronounce it, I remember. You did, and it's, it's Theater it's Rhythm. It's Theater Rhythm. It's Theater Rhythm. I'd still been playing that. That that game's great. That's I've been having a lot of fun with. Uh, yeah, in terms of other video games, I haven't been playing a lot of games. I will talk about one other kind of game that you will not expect that I would have been playing. Uh, one you might have expected is that while my brother was here, Vampire Survivors came out on Switch, and we both got that, and it was a huge mistake, because that game is just... <laughs> now I'm just going through and 100%ing that game again, and it is just... I feel I feel dirty and awful every time I put my Switch down, just like, 
this must be how someone who smokes and wants to stop smoking feels every time they finish a pack is is my is my feeling with the the difference that vampire survivors won't give me lung cancer but it it is killing my soul a little bit yeah that's a, uh, uh they just released the new update for hollow cure which is the hollow live themed vampire survivors type game and i haven't jumped into it yet for the exact reason you're describing because it's like i've got work stuff going on i have other things i feel like are more productive for me to be doing even like personal entertainment stuff that feels more productive yes. than putting another like dozen hours into a vampire survivors like but goddamn those games are incredibly addicting incredibly addicting um let's see what else should i talk about sean can i can i tell the people about my adventures with a uh, venerable old anime franchise Okay, sure. I, well, you don't know, know what, what this is. is. No. I have, I have become, in the last couple of weeks, a surprisingly big fan of Sword Art Online. Okay, yes. I, I know this a little bit, but we didn't have time. You talked about this briefly on an episode of Japanimation Station recorded, but that yes. was not the topic of that episode, and I did not know, and I was fascinated and wanted to talk about it, but there was no space to do it on that podcast, so I'm glad okay. that you're bringing this up. So, uh, and when I say this... I, uh, surprisingly, I have become mostly a fan of the books. I have not liked much of what I've seen of the anime, which is probably pretty weird as like Western fans of Sword Art Online go. Although the novels are all out in English. Like it is one of those series that has the full spectrum of light novels are out mm -hmm. if you want to go read them. Um, but anyway, the reason for this is I am the chapter I am working on for my dissertation is about the relationship between video games and anime, which is an extremely big subject. And, and I had always had this outlined as the fourth chapter in my dissertation. And uh, when I finally <laughs> sat down to start writing it, I realized this is its own book. This is like so broad. There's, there's so many things. Like when I was making the outline of all the things I wanted to talk about, I realized I just wrote another four chapter fucking outline for a separate book. Mm -hmm. I need to focus this. One of the first things I started looking into was I just started doing a little Isekai 101 for myself. Because this was going to be one of the topics no matter what. Because if you're talking about video games plus anime, you should talk about the Isekai genre. Which is yes. the genre of things about people either going into video game worlds or worlds inspired by video games. And so I, uh, I, I, got, a, I got a new Kindle this summer. My first, I, the last Kindle I bought, the Amazon like e-reader device, was when you and I were in the condo together in Boulder. So it had been like eight or yeah. nine years. Uh, it did not work anymore, uh, and so I finally, finally bit the bullet. The nice thing was, it had been so long since I bought a Kindle that the lowest priced one, like the cheapest one you could get on Amazon, is nicer than the one I had back then. It's that kind of nice like tech spread thing where they brought all those features down, and it was like this is great. It only cost me eighty bucks, and I, I had been using that to read a lot of different things. But I loaded it up with the light novel versions because this was, I thought, a good place to start of, let's see, Sword Art Online, Konosuba, mm -hmm. uh, ReZero, and Bofuri. Because I'd already seen Bofuri the anime. And I was like, I want to kind of see. These were all ones that had English translations, uh, just to make it easy. Uh, I wanted to see kind of how that is written. And then these other ones were like a, a decent spread. Some of these are ones that I know of because my brother's a giant fan of. And Sword Art Online... Sword Art Online was the one I was least excited for. I just thought that was going to be the due diligence one because that's the most famous. If you're going to talk about Isekais, it's the most important one to talk about. All mm -hmm. of that, right? Um, but I, I read the first volume of all four of those and I had to keep tearing myself away from other volumes of Sword Art Online because I wound up really liking those books. I think, like, it's super fascinating too. Have you? I know you've seen the anime. Have you ever read any of Sword Art Online, Sean? No, no, I haven't. 
Okay. So people, I, I would imagine our audience knows the general premise of Sword Art Online. But it yes, is if the, you die in the game, you die in real life. It's basically, yes. Um, it is. It's not a game. It's a game, but it's not something you play. That's the tagline. It's at the front of every one of the books. Anyway, um, but the first arc of Sword Art Online is the one where they're actually playing the game called Sword Art Online, where the main character, Kirito, is um, he's playing a new VR MMORPG. Uh, the, the term VR also is like completely inadequate to actually explain what is the actual system of Sword Art Online. I have realized that when I said VR in my dissertation and then realized I need to make some kind of note about this because it's not actually VR. It's some kind of it is VR, but not in the headset idea. It's like literally like intercepting their nerve endings and all of yes, this stuff. It is called the nerve gear. And it is, yeah, yes. as you say, it intercepts the nerve, sig- nerve signals of your brain and tricks your brain into thinking you are actually in that place in receiving like so it is it is like a truly virtual reality. It is not just you're looking at like a 3D image with goggles, which is all that VR is for us. Yes. And in fact, I actually really like how the nerve gear is illustrated in the anime and then also the illustrations in the book. It's accurate to that is that it doesn't have an eyepiece. It's a helmet, but like the one thing it doesn't need is something over. It has like a visor that comes down to like block vision, but it does not have anything you're looking through because it just intercepts your optic nerves, which is an interesting inversion of VR stuff in our world. Mm-hmm. But then that first arc, they're playing the game sort of online. It's about this big castle called Aincrad, which is why the first arc is called Aincrad. And uh, on the day one, the logout button is removed the villain of the or the creator of the game who becomes the villain akihiko kayaba tells them all you've got to beat all 104s and then i will free you from this game and then they proceed to do that and what's so fascinating is that if you've only watched the anime the Aincrad arc is the first 14 episodes of the anime and it's told very linearly that anime adaptation is a really interesting frankenstein monster of a bunch of different stories in the books because the first ever Sword Art Online story was written way back in 2001 mm-hmm. for a novel contest. I feel like this is the origin story of every novelist we talk about from Japan, Sean. Yes. Because this is also like the Kinoko Nasu thing and, and everyone else. Um, and he wrote this book, and it, it was not supposed to be a long-term project because it was supposed to be a one-off. So the Aincrad arc is, like, if you want to know what's in the actual book, it's basically just the initial premise... Then it jumps ahead to floor 75 to the moment when, in the original telling, uh, Kirito and the female protagonist Asuna meet for the first time. They fall in love. It's the romance story. And then it is them beating the game together. That's basically what happens in that first book. And then when he turned it, the, the author, Reki Kawahara, turned it into a web novel, he extended that with multiple short stories that kind of go back and insert into the text at various points. And the anime cobbled all that together into chronological order and asked him to write some new stories, one of which became the basis of a second light novel series called Sword Art Online Progressive, which is where he goes back and does Aincrad like one floor at a time extremely in-depth as a separate kind of side story. Um, So like that first book is kind of rough in a lot of ways, like it absolutely barrels through the story. It ends extremely abruptly on the 75th floor, all this stuff, but... It's really well written in a lot of places, and it has an absolutely incredible sense of world building. And this, like, really drew my attention because it's an extremely prescient story. Like, it knows 
its stuff when it comes to video games. And it's constantly predicting, especially when you consider the story was originally written in 2001, a bunch of major trends in 3D video games. Uh, And that continues into the second arc, the whole fairy dance arc, which is kind of a a direct follow-up to what happens in Aincrad when they wake up. Um, And, like, all of that is really fascinating. I've then gone over and been reading some of the progressive volumes because I'm specifically going to write about the Aincrad arc in this chapter. Um, Sword Art Online goes on and has a bajillion stories that get longer and longer. I think Alicization is like 10 volumes, which is why that had to be 50-some episodes. I think... I think that is that two four core. No, I think that's fifty. I think you're right. I think it's two yeah, two core. Two, two core. Yeah. yeah, but it was big. It's it's like four times the length of Aincrad. Yeah, and that like is that is up to what the anime has adapted in terms of the like yes. the story. They've made like the the Asuna movie that I haven't watched yet. Um, but they've made some other stuff. But that's like the furthest they've gone in the timeline for the anime. Yeah. So anyway, I've I've been in, I like Reki Kawahara's style. Like I just I it, I I really resonate with his voice. There is something, and I know you share this too, Sean, on some things. I like fiddly little details in fiction. Mm-hmm. I like, this is why I like the Master and Commander series, the Aubrey Macharin books about the old ships in the Napoleonic era, because, you know, you'll be reading the story, and suddenly we're going to stop for five pages and explain how you climb the mizzenmast in, like, really excruciating detail, and I enjoy that. And Sword Art Online absolutely has that kind of excruciating fiddly detail, to the degree where I think it would be like absolute boredom city for a lot of people but i think if you're on the wavelength and you're interested in what kawahara is doing which is often like really interesting stuff where he's taking like a genuine gamer's understanding of how video games work as his basis and then i think asking some pretty interesting fundamental questions like i think the actual aincrad volumes one and two the original books in the series maybe only tap into like 5% of the actual potential of that like setting that he has created, but that still makes it a fascinating little slice of pop culture fiction because it's a great idea. Like what if you were stuck in a fucking MMO for two years and that just became your life? Like the thing he arrives at over the course of that and then the subsequent arc is you can see him like grappling with how like the first couple volumes clearly and he's even written this in some of the afterwards he felt like he had to add the game of death thing because no one would want to see a story about a video game with no life or death stakes which the later like totality of the isekai genre has proved false right there's Mm -hmm. plenty of stories about playing video games where it's not you die in the game you die in real life and even later sword art online arcs don't do that not all of them some of them do some of them don't and like you see him coming to this realization of like well, if you just spend enough time in this other virtual world, it is a version of reality in and of itself. Like, you see him, over the course of those first couple books, come to what will be, I think, the overarching thesis of the isekai genre of the 21st century, which is that virtual worlds are real worlds to some meaningful extent. And that is, I think, true in a show as silly and lightweight as Bofuri, and a show as like heavy and full of death as ReZero, or whatever ones you want to name, right? That is the overarching thesis. And I think it's a really interesting thing these stories are doing that Sword Art Online, as kind of the progenitor of most of these, is kind of arriving at in real time. And that's what has fascinated to me, me about reading it. I didn't really gel with the anime. I watched the first season. I thought it was fine. I think it 
it doesn't have most of the fiddly little details that I love. It is chronologically ordered, which is more coherent, but less interesting as a piece of storytelling. It doesn't get to do some of the jumps in POV that you get in the stories because of that. Um, and I think there's some things like, I think the actors who play Kirito and Asuna are pretty young and inexperienced at the beginning of that show. I think I've jumped ahead to like the progressive movies and they're much better there. I just don't think there's as much weight in what they're doing early on. Um, my main thing I like the show for is it is a Yuki Kajiura delivery vehicle because mm-hmm. she does the music and it's incredible. It's, it's Yuki Kajiura music. It's, it's like the show opens with the like, uh, you know, gong going duh, and you're like, Oh yeah, this sounds like a Kalafina song. This is great. And all the vocalists are from other Yuki Kajiura projects like Lisa and stuff like that. And it's great. Um, but I didn't like, I have not watched the anime beyond that point. I've been doing other stuff, uh, including because I felt for my dissertation, I wanted to also see how to sort out online, become a video game in those adaptations. I've been playing the, I don't even know what year it's at least 10 years old, the game hollow fragment, which was a Vita game that got a PS4 re-release, uh, and is basically the first big sort art online game. And that's been absolutely fascinating too. That's going to have some stuff in my dissertation. But overall, like what has happened is that my dissertation chapter is basically going to be about Sword Art Online with these other ideas and series and stuff kind of worked in throughout. But that's become the through line because there's a lot of interesting stuff I've found there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because like, I think what you're saying there about the, the like about it's like the world building side of it. To me, that is so much like fundamentally what at least this kind of isekai. I mean, isekai is a hard genre to talk about at this point because there's so many different kinds. Um, it's, re- it's really not even a genre anymore. <laughs> it's, it's like right. five genres or more. Um, but, but that sort of thread or the broad thread that Sword Art Online exists in, I think like the thing that's most interesting about it is it's the sekai part. It's the world. It's like it's a vehicle with which you get to sort of imagine some sort of fantasy world that is usually a kind of Frankenstein's monster of dozens of different influences from fantasy and video games um and just sort of like get to describe it and just get to play in that world um and i do think that you're that like you're right the sword art online anime partially because it's like an early one of these adapted into anime doesn't like doesn't structure itself like that there are other ones that are more like that there's like the slime one I was reincarnated as a slime or whatever the fuck the title is. I could never remember the exact title of those kinds of things. That you, if, time I got reincarnated as a slime is yes, what it is. Tensuda, as you would just call it in Japanese, because even Japanese people don't remember the full titles no. of those. They just abbreviate it. Um, but That's that where show, Bofuri and Konosuba, those titles come from. Exactly. Like, that show is just almost entirely about... Let's like come up with all these like different rules for how this world that isn't literally a video game but basically works on video game logic works, um, and just kind of like set this character loose who just exploits those systems and becomes incredibly powerful, but creates like a community of monsters and all this shit. But it's about sort of oh here's this nation and this is how this nation works and this is how it interacts with this nation. This is how magic works. This is how this group of people interprets magic, and it's just about sort of a world building exercise. And then you sort of the core of it has a bunch of sort of very tropey anime shit that sort of pushes the plot forward but the plot is not the point the point is engaging in the world building and enjoying the world building that to me is like so much what that kind of side of the genre can be good about um and yeah like the sword online anime particularly season one doesn't always get into that um you also for me i have the problem with season one which is that like the einkrad stuff is not like the greatest anime in the world but is like pretty good and then i think the the elf world one that follows it i think is like 
a terrible part of that story. Um, there's like a little bit of interesting stuff in the transition point, but as soon as it gets into Kirito is in that other virtual world and is doing that shit, I found, I think that is like incredibly tedious. And then it also has the like weird pseudo incest subplot with the sister <laughs> who's not the sister. Cause of course she's not actually a sister, but it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I will say I found uh, there are parts of that arc in the books. I liked very, very much with, there are like two giant asterisks on that arc, which is, the sister stuff is weird. The character is great other than the mm-hmm. she's in love with her cousin thing. Now, to be clear, there are some differences in like cultural like lines on incest there, but it's still weird. It uh, still it still pushes it. It's still like it even still even yes. within the world of anime, it is pushing that line. Yeah. And to be clear, it is resolved by the end. I don't know where it goes, I guess, after that point. At the in the books at least, she like comes to a yeah. piece with it, I guess, by the end. Because she also sees him with Asuna, who is effectively his wife. Um, but anyway, uh, so there's that asterisk, and there's the asterisk that Asuna is literally trapped in a birdcage for uh-huh. most of that arc, which is not great, because Asuna's whole thing is that she's like the most powerful person in this world. Um, so a little a little damsel in distressy there. She gets to do some cool stuff in it. But I will say... I liked that arc for all of its fiddly little world building in the books. And I actually, I say I watched season one of the anime. I tapped out about halfway through the Alfheim online stuff. It just was like, this is kind of like what I didn't like in the, in the books or like in the anime and not all the stuff I didn't appreciate here. Cause also I will say, I think the anime Kirito is just a way less interesting character. He's, he's not like super dynamic in the books, but the books are like most light novels, first person stories, where a he does not need to be the most interesting character because you are inside his head and he is something of a like vessel for the reader but also his seeing his thoughts and attitudes on things he comes across as a pretty down to earth realistic person you just feel like is is kind of there and has a sort of solidity to him and i think in the anime he more comes across as a very sort of bland stock character and i think that's a problem of adaptation from what I have seen so far. Well, um, he's, he's, he's like very literally a self-insert character, right? Like that's, yeah. I mean, and he comes from that tradition of that kind of web novel world where that's more forgivable in literature. Cause as you say, you're literally in that instance, you're looking through the character's eyes. You're in that character's head. It is a first person narration. Whereas once that character is externalized in the anime, um, it becomes more obvious how much of a self-insert kind of character, like author character he is. Um, and I think the anime gets way better once you're out of that second half of season. Like, I think it, it, the Kirito stuff is fine in the first half of season one because he is still developing, at least in the early parts, because he is like, you know, because he has to be introduced to the world and all that kind of stuff. Once he becomes like, I'm dual wielder, super badass dude with the black coat and all that, it, get, it gets very, as you'd say in Japanese, chunibyo. Um, it gets very like, you know, I'm a cool middle schooler who thinks I'm so cool because I can dual wield swords. Um, it definitely goes into that place <laughs> a little bit too much. Um, but once you get into the season two area, that's where the show sort of like picks up on, well, we you can't have Kirito just be the main character in the plot anymore because he's too powerful and because it's like a bit embarrassing. So you so they invent a new kid. So like there's a new character that is actually the focal character of every subsequent arc, like Shinon, who's also voiced by Miki Swashiro in the Gun Gale online stuff. So of course, I like oh, it is. Lot. Okay. Yes. I didn't know that about Shinon. Okay. That's cool. Um, here's the other thing about the Alfheim online arc, which is called Fairy Dance is the name of the arc. 
the thing in the books is it's mostly from Suguha's perspective. It is mostly told mm. from the sister's perspective. And it is her as Lifa in the game, not knowing she's playing with her brother, having this perspective on this weird dude who drops into her game she's been playing for a year and is suddenly is like he has crazy powers. And she's like trying to understand that. That's an awesome story and perspective to have. And because it's mostly not from Kirito's perspective, it's interesting. The anime completely loses that because it just can't. Maybe there would have been a way to recreate that, but they don't really get that like particular dynamic where Suguha is like truly the actual like point of view character of that arc in the books. That makes way more sense. I feel like the anime should have like separated those out like made those effectively different seasons or something it's one of the things that like when sword art online was coming out you could tell like like people were really into it early on and then you could tell when people turned on that show like the people who turned on it the show is still incredibly popular but there was like a group of people who were into it and turned on it and it was exactly where the einkrad arc wraps up but the end, but the season's not over. And so it's like it, it sort of awkwardly transitions into the next story. And there's a really good transition episode where it's like, oh, what is Kirito's life like once he is not in the game, right? And he has to adjust into real life. And I remember thinking at the time, that would just be a way better show if it just like yes. continued like this. If it was like the original Macross show where they didn't plan to have an extra 12 episodes, but the show is so popular that it's just like, hey, make some more. And they're like, shit, okay, I mean, we wrapped up the story, but okay, we'll do 12 more episodes of all the characters on this earth that's been like ruined to shit. Um, and that's like the most interesting part of that show. It would have been really cool to see an entire arc just about Kirito adjusting having to like deal with his muscles that have been fucking atrophied and all that shit that happens, which the show does touch on. It just doesn't spend enough time on it. And it would have been cooler for the show. Um, I can see how in the books, if you adjust the perspective that makes that whole arc make way more sense to me than the way that the show handles it. Yeah. Cause he, the, the way the books work is you will often get other point of view characters. Kirito is the only one who's written in first person, but you'll have third person like limited of Suguha where it's, you know, using she, her pronouns, but it is her point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do that pretty frequently. Honestly, my favorite volume of the books I've read is just volume two of Sword Art Online, which is just a set of short, short stories from the life of the Aincrad arc that the anime then goes and puts in in their chronological places. Mm-hmm. But they're all told from other people's points of view, like the, the girl who is the blacksmith who helps him out or the girl who has the little dragon that he helps revive, or Asuna, you get her point of view for the first time in that story. That's where the whole thing about the like AI girl they meet, Yui, comes from. That's a story from that volume. And then I oh, think wow, that was a, that's weird to think that's like that wasn't even in the original. That's not in the original full story. story because like that's such an important <laughs> character in the yes. scope of that series. <laughs> this is a whole thing I have a a, a a a couple paragraphs on in my in my dissertation is about the weirdness of the Ironcrad arc in its original publication. And part of that is because he's like, he and the anime, the author and the anime are still literally expanding on it with the progressive arc in the books. And then they've made two of the movies of progressive is that if you count up all of the first meetings Kirito and Asuna has, I think there's like 10 now they have like every time that story comes back, there is a new first meeting that those characters have had. Like in the original book, it's just floor 75. In the second book, it's a little earlier. In volume eight, he has another short story, and that puts 
starts it a little earlier, and that's the one that anime uses in season one. But then the progressive story just makes it floor one. But then the progressive movie makes it floor one, but a little earlier. And it's just so funny to me. Every time they are just adding in, uh, and you just, there is, there's no like reconcilable continuity really of all the versions of the Aincrad arc. And it's kind of fun to try to hold that all in your head. It's very weird. Yeah, that is weird. Um, but but sort of online progressive, I will say, and I think this is generally the fan response. That series is fucking great. That's just that's basically what I think a lot of people wanted the Ancrad arc to be, which is just all right. Buckle up. Book one is floor one. Book two is floor two. Let's do this. It'll never be finished because it's a hundred floors, and there's uh, no human way he's going to get through it. But it's really fun, and it it does not gel with the continuity of the original series because he just puts Asuna and Kirito together from the beginning, and she's rewritten a little bit to be a little more kind of tsundere on him, where she's like, uh, which. It tracks a little bit with what she was in the original series where they were not particularly friendly early on until they fall in love. Um, so it doesn't, it's kind of a new continuity of that, but it is them going floor by floor and each floor has a different theme. And in the, on the third floor, it starts this elf war quest line that's going to last until the ninth floor. And he's not even at that point in the publication yet. Uh, and it's just, it's actually very good. I'm reading the, the book that is the fourth floor right now, which is this big like Venice style series of waterways. And it's about Kirito and Asuna doing this quest where they build a big ship and then are investigating things. And it's just, it's, it's fiddly details, the, series and if you like that kind of thing it's all out there and it's good that's wild yeah i didn't i didn't realize how deep that the progressive side of that series is uh because i like i knew that that was generally like oh it's filling in more gaps in the Einkrad stuff but i didn't realize it was literally each book is a single floor um that yes. is that is a lofty uh lofty setup for a series of novels I don't, I like, I don't, I really do not understand what his long-term plan is because in the kind of lore, the turning point doesn't, like, where the, like, the the guild that Asuna is a part of in the main series and the character Heathcliff who turns out to be Kayaba and all this stuff, that all happens around the 25th floor where there's a giant, like, mass casualty event Mm -hmm. and there's a big turning point there. But if he does it one book at a time for each floor he won't get there until 25 volumes and the series proper is only 26 right now uh so like it's it's insane um i don't know if that series has like a long-term future but i enjoy it for what it is so far and they've made two movies based on that um but it's it's good and i look forward to eventually going back and reading the main arc and getting into alicization and all of that because i know like alicization is the part i feel like people really love from the anime and the books and all that yeah i that's my favorite part of the anime for sure i mean the the two i think best sections of the anime are um there's the arc that i forget what it's called it's like the mother's rosario arc it's the one in the anime it's called yeah it's it's all from that's like one of the rare ones where it is literally just asana's point of view um from for the anime as well i assume it is in the book um and that one's incredibly good um partially because it's like you're just not dealing with kirito's stuff that much you just get to see kirito as like this occasionally helpful boyfriend and that's all he factors into that story um it's entirely about asana um in her relationship with this other character um and it and and it's the stuff some of the stuff that i like is when it gets more into the sci-fi stuff that sword art online does because like sword art online is one of the only isekai series that actually sort of like takes its premise as a sci-fi premise most isekai series it's purely a fantasy style premise where it doesn't really care about the like nature of the video game world versus interacting with the physical world and all that kind of stuff like sword art online is fundamentally a young adult sci-fi series um then the alicization stuff is the best 
um, particularly the first half, because that's when you get Yu-Gi-Oh! And Yu-Gi-Oh! fucking rules. Yu-Gi-Oh! is my boy. Um, I love Yu-Gi-Oh! He's really good. I have not gotten to that stuff, so I don't know what that is. But yes, I I want to read more. I want to play more. This The game is super weird because it is a PS Vita single-player game imitating an MMO, but not really the kind of game Sword Art Online is. So it has this weird story hook where it starts at the end of the Aincred story and it's just, well, what if Heathcliff just disappeared but they didn't get out of the game? So it starts on floor 76 and all their weapons are fucked up so they can kind of like play with the mechanics. It's actually, I will say, for the purposes of what I'm writing about, it's theoretically very rich. I would not necessarily recommend it to someone to play for fun, but it is an interesting game. It only cost me 20 bucks, so, you know, put that on the research fee pile. And goddamn, I'm looking at the Sword Art Online Wikipedia page, and there are a lot of Sword Art Online video games. They, Most they of those are like weird. One, mo- one a year. Most of those are weird mobile spinoffs. There is a main series of four or five console games that are their own subcontinuity that starts from that deviation point and goes through all the games. Like there's Alfheim Online, there's Gungale Online, but it's a different story within those than what is in the series proper. It's a whole weird thing. Yeah, that's, you know, Sword Online, it is very popular. It's got a, it's got a lot of shit. Um, it's it's theoretically rich. I'm enjoying it. So yeah, I, I am now a Sword Art Online fan. You know, in a kind of weird way, I will probably pick. Maybe I'll just jump ahead and pick up the anime at season two with the Gun Gale Online stuff because I know people like that. That's that's popular enough that that has its own spinoff that Reki yes. Kawahara doesn't write that has become its own anime that I think is getting a second season. It is. It is getting it's a crazy. second season. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. It is. Yeah. It, it is wild. And then if you watch season two of Sword Art Online, you get you can watch like the two most tedious episodes of anime I've ever seen in my life. Which is there? In order to stretch it out to twenty-four episodes, they just sort of wrote. I'm looking at it now. I think it's episodes like fifteen and sixteen, or maybe it's sixteen, seventeen. Um, but they just write these two episodes, and it's just purely a little filler arc. That it's just like it's just them doing a video game quest, and there's nothing more to it. It's just all the characters, and they just do a random video game quest. And it is it's the most tedious thing you have seen this side of like the Garlic Junior Saga, um, and it's terrible. So when you get to those, you can fucking skip them. Uh, it's, it's, it's it's really bad. Okay, that's where they're going back to Alfheim Online to get Excalibur, right? That yes. is a story in the books, although I think it's more of like a what-if story. I haven't gotten to that volume, but it's one of the short stories he wrote for some other publication that then got collected in Volume 8 of the books, which every so often there's a book that collects all the different little mini-novellas he's written in different places, and that is one of them. So I did uh, not know I'm, they put that in the series. Yeah, I'm shocked that that even has any connection to the books at all, just because like, if you watch it, 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 it is the most stinks of filler thing you have ever seen in your fucking life. <laughs> It is so, it's so bad. You know, they, they can't all be winners. Riki Kawahara, like a lot of these light novelists, writes uh, an obscene amount. He has Sword Art Online, he has Sword Art Online Progressive, he has Ocel World, or Excel World. I guess it would be Excel World, because it's yeah, Acceleration. It's Excel. And then he has a new one that he started recently. Sword Art Online is still going. The reason there hasn't been more of the TV anime is because he's in an arc that is about the length of Alicization. It's just not done yet, so they haven't started the anime up again. But when they do, it's going to have to be another 50 episodes, because it's enormous. Um, it, yeah, he writes a lot. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's a whole crazy world. Yep. And then uh, quick hits on the other Isekai stuff. Uh, I really liked what I read of ReZero. Just haven't gotten back to it yet. Uh, Konosuba is funny as shit. And I did watch the first season with my brother while he was here. So and that funny. show fucking slaps. It's so funny. Megamine is our queen. Uh-huh. Uh, our exploding queen. And uh, we all love Bofuri. I don't need to talk more yes. about that. Bofuri rocks. It's, yes. I think it's less interesting in book form. 
part of that, the one thing I did notice with the translations, part of why I enjoy Sword Art Online is it just has far and away the best English translation of anything I read. Um, I do, though, think that Konosuba and Bofri specifically are harder because they are comedies. And mm-hmm. comedies are just harder to do in translation. The ReZero one was fine. I found the translation slightly confusing in places where I could tell, like, oh, this is where the Japanese thing of there's some vagueness on who is talking at different points because of Mm -hmm. like, and it wasn't translated great. And that's why in English it came out as confusing. Um, I'm sure if you read it long term, it's fine. But yeah, that also, of course, as an anime adaptation, you could just watch. But yeah. I'm curious, at what point in ReZero did you get to in the story? Just the basic first arc, which is the setting things up. like, And then he goes and becomes the like butler at the mansion. And that's where Uh. I left off. Uh, so it's very early. I think in the anime, that's the first three episodes, and that's yes. that's all I watched there too. Um, I will get. I will read again. My plan was to do more of it. I just kind of got obsessed with Sword Art Online, and that is the one that I'm going to be writing about more. So that's where I've been kind of putting my my efforts. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing I did do in the past like three weeks that that is vaguely connected to this is I did watch the spinoff anime of Konosuba that's adapting the Megamine um, focused like, uh, like sort of uh, prequel. Uh, yeah. And that's that is incredibly good. So people should. That's like Kono Bakuen O. Um, like I forget what, what that it's translated. It's, it's translated as an explosion on this wonderful world. Yes. Uh, my brother was big on that. I got him a Megamine poster for his birthday. He loves Megamine. He loves that. That's like his favorite show, or one of his favorite shows. Uh, and I have been uh, looking forward to getting to that one too. Because yes, Megamine. I mean, all the characters in Konosuba are amazing, but Megamine is clearly, you know, she's the girl who goes out, explodes once a day, and then has to be carted back in. She is our queen and savior. Yeah, it's 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 very good that show. So. Yeah, Konosuba gets two thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, what else have you been up to, Sean? Um, it's, it has been a lot of a game that we've maybe sometimes talked about on this podcast every once in a while. Um, a game that, uh, according to my PS5, I've played over a thousand hours of at this point. I finally peaked it. Jesus. Um, Genshin Impact, uh, in, I think two weeks ago at this point, got its 4.0 update. So we are now in... Um, the the wonderful world of Fontaine, which is fake France, um, and it is it's really fucking good. Uh, I don't know if people have heard this before, uh, but Genshin Impact <laughs> it's a, it's a very good game. Um, yeah, so the 4.0 update basically what it is is they've added in the first section of Fontaine. It's obviously going to be what they've done for each major region where they're going to add in new sections in each subsequent update, probably up to like 0.3 or 0.4 um, and, and keep on expanding on the world. But you get this first area, including the Court of Fontaine, which is by far the biggest city area they've added. Um, it's a very big city um, with a lot of stuff in it and then a lot of like the outlying region around that. Uh, there are two main story mission um, quest lines, which are very long, um, and then a character mission for Lene, who is the new five-star character they've added. Um, and then there is just a whole huge host of different like mechanical additions and stuff. Um, so, like starting with some of the mechanical stuff, it is uh, Fontaine is the water region. So this is something that they've sort of been teasing for a while, but they have added in a whole underwater exploration mechanic. It's only in Fontaine, so they haven't like done something crazy and gone back and like added underwater areas in the earlier sections of the game. Um, but like about half, if maybe not a little bit more than half of the explorable region they've added is underwater. Um, and so they've added a whole like set of mechanics to make that make sense. Um, including like 
how you do combat underwater is you get these kind of like power-ups that you can absorb by different um, underwater creatures that give you give you different skills, like an underwater sort of like slashing blade you can shoot out. There's a counter type like move you get from like a hermit crab um, that's kind of like you create a shell and then you shoot it out. Um, and then there's a sonar based one you get from like a little whale thingy. Um, but it's really interesting the way the underwater stuff works because you have, you know, full three do, uh, 360 degree movement. Um, and one thing they've done that I really like is that you're quite fast underwater. So it feels incredibly good. Like as soon as you dive underwater, you can feel how much faster your character moves. And it just kind of like changes the whole way you engage with exploration. Um, and they tend to mix the underwater stuff with um, like underwater caverns and stuff. So you're kind of coming out of the water, exploring a little region on land, going back into the water and navigating that way. Um, so that has like, is a huge new feature to the game. Um, there's then all the new, um, Fontaine characters have another sort of like, there's a, there's a two additional sort of like mini elements or something, I guess you could call them. There's basically like a light and dark element that are used for mostly puzzles, um, and Fontaine characters have them kind of on top of their existing skills. So like Lene, who's the new um, Pyro five-star, he's a bow character. And if you do his charged shot, it will also like do this additional hit of uh, damage that does this sort of light damage that on certain objects in the world for puzzles will help you solve puzzles. And to, for Fontaine-specific enemies, it will neutralize their attacks. Um, and then for some of them, they're like dark aligned. So you have two new characters, Lene and Lynette, one of them has light, one of them has dark. That is obviously a thing that will continue for new Fontaine characters. So that is another new big mechanical thing. So they've added a whole huge uh, host of different mechanical stuff that most of it is more specifically in Fontaine. You're not getting like Dendro here is something that is going to affect every piece of content. Going back to the earliest stuff in uh, Genshin, it is a little bit more contained, which I kind of pr like. I don't know if I could handle something that was as huge as the Sumeru update. 3.0 was fucking massive. 4.0 is much more sort of like you can wrap your head around it, and it's like a little bit more like I can just approach this at my own pace while I'm also having to work a job, um, and I appreciate that. Uh, in terms of the story stuff, it's fucking great. So the setting of Fontaine is... Um, I, I was guess I was curious at getting into it at first, how they would differentiate it from Mondstadt, because it's conceptually the most similar to an earlier area, right? Mondstadt is effectively medieval Germany, um, and Fontaine is France. And so I was, you know, going into it, you're wondering, what do you do to differentiate these two kind of European influenced places? But the big difference is Fontaine's influences are much later in history. So it's much more sort of like this late 18th century, early 19th century kind of revolutionary France era thing they're pulling from. Fontaine is the uh, country of justice. And so there's a lot of like the whole society operates around this sort of kangaroo court called the Opera House. Um, which is both where they do theater and it is also where they hold trials and their trials are very theatrical. Um, and so people go down to the opera house and either they will see a show or they will see a trial being um, performed. Right. And so the whole country is kind of pulling from that sort of the kangaroo courts of the reign of terror era France without it being quite so like guillotine. -y. You're not getting like, you know, the, <laughs> the streets are not running red with blood, but it's just sort of playing with some of those ideas and that aesthetic, which is fun. And there's a whole kind of steampunky aspect to it as well, where you have these clockwork mecha that walk around um, that are some of the new enemy types as well in the world. And so it's, it's much more sort of technologically advanced um, and you get to play around with that. And then in the main storylines, they have a whole sort of like 
basically a Saturni inspired thing that happens where both of the new story missions have um, like culminate in these big trials and you do a little investigation and you find evidence and then you have a trial and you have to put the evidence together. And there's like a whole new kind of like interface and all this really fun stuff they've done for that. It's not like hugely interactive in the sense of like, you can't fail the trial. It's very scripted. Like there's no way for you to be able to access the trial without having all the evidence you need to win your point. Um, And if you like, are having a hard time putting the evidence together, like you can try it as many times. So you can just get through it by brute force trial and error. But narratively, it's very satisfying. It's like very fun to sort of investigate this case, um, sort of wrap your head around what's happening here, um, and then do your trial, especially because the opposition on the trial for the first one is Farina, who is the god of water, and she is the fucking best. She's this little fucking brat. She looks like she's like 14 or 15 years old. She's one of the younger gods, kind of like Nahida. She's from, um, I think, post the Cataclysm. She's less than like 500 years old, which is young compared to like Zhongli, who's like 10,000 years old or some shit. Um, but she's just like... She clearly is not the person who really holds the reign of powers in Fontaine. There's a different character called Nouvellet who does that, who he's like the chief justice or whatever. Um, And so I think he might actually be even older than Farina. Uh, We don't really know what his whole deal is yet. But she just sort of like runs around and she has a fun time and all the people like her. And she just is the one who likes to go and like put on a big performance at the opera house. Um, And so you get to do a trial with her um, against her. And it's very very fucking fun. Uh, Lene and Lynette, who are the two new characters they've added that are also a big part of the story, are very fun. They're these two magicians. And so in the first mission that happens, you kind of make friends with them. You get introduced to the world of Fontaine. You go with them to the opera house where they're going to perform a magic show. And during the magic show, an accident happens that causes one of the assistants to be crushed by a giant tank of water for like a Houdini like escape um, thing. And then uh, Lene is uh, accused of it not being an accident, it being murder. So you have to investigate it. And that's the starting point. That's very fun. And then the second set of quests, um, you have a character called Navia, who you can't play as yet, but she's cool. She's voiced by Toyosaki Aki, who is Union in Konosuba, and uh, the main character in Kaon as well, um, who, Jonathan, you will get to know very well in the future. <laughs> um, and that character is fantastic. She's like a the boss of this sort of like underground organization that is trying that sort of opposes the sort of very clinical and farcical justice of Fontaine and is like working for the people and her dad got wrapped up in this whole drug thing of like there's this drug that people are using um that only works on Fontaine people and there's all this kind of fantasy stuff happening there and her dad Um, was framed for a murder and he was killed in a duel because if you don't want to hold trial in Fontaine, there's a whole class of professional duelists. So if you don't want to hold the trial, well, then you can fight for your honor in the dueling ring against a professional duelist and he does that and he gets killed. Um, And you have to sort of, you find some new evidence that sort of shines a new light on that case and you go and you kind of open up this cold case and help her investigate what happened with her dad. And that is also an incredibly cool story. Um, But yeah, just top to bottom, Genshin Impact kicks so much ass. um, And this update has just sort of, as with each big full version update, like just injects a whole host of new like kind of life into the game at every aspect in terms of the characters, in terms of the mechanics, in terms of this like story, the world. Um, it is it is incredibly good, and I've had a fantastic time playing it. And the voice cast, top to bottom, is fucking ridiculously stacked. Um, Lene is voiced by Shima Nohiro. People know as Zenitsu in uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, Farina is voiced by Minase Inori, who's 
in a lot of stuff. She's in like the quintessential quintuplets. Um, and she's just in like kind of every modern anime she plays. Usually like if there's a bunch of um, like girls in it, she's going to be like one of the main girls. Um, and then Nouvellet is voiced by our boy Kamiya Hiroshi, one of the best voice actors of the modern period in his performance. Oh, he's finally in Genshin. Yes. Wow. That's and awesome. his performance is fascinating because the character is very sort of flat and emotionless because he's this like weird, he's the chief justice and he is this like ancient guy who's been around for seemingly hundreds of years. Um, and like, you kind of don't fully, like they've sort of implied what his deal is. Like, I think you get a sense of, I won't spoil it, but like what his true like identity is, but it, it is like, he's a character that you have a real, takes a long time to kind of get your head around what the fuck is up with this dude. And Kamihiroshi's performance is so well calibrated to be like, who is this guy? Like, what is this fucking dude's deal? Like, is he human? Is he not human? What is going on with him? Um, but yeah, it's just top to bottom. The voice cast is so stacked and the character is so good. Ishikawa Yui is in it. Uh, 2B or Mikasa from uh, Attack on Titan. She plays Clarinde, who is the professional duelist that killed Navia's dad, who she's obviously going to be added as a playable character in the future. Um, it's there's it's a lot. It's so much stuff. All the open world quest stuff is so good this time, too. There's a whole race of little, tiny, adorable, like, underwater people called the Melusine that are, like, I don't even know how you describe what they look like. They're just, like, little, like, if, like, dolphins evolved to look like people, maybe, is what they look like. And they're adorable, and they have a little underwater village that you can visit them in. Um, there's a little one of them called Mamir, who is a painter, um, and you kind of figure out what her whole deal is. And they live inside a giant giant dead dragon's skeleton that turned into an island. Um, they're like the children of this dead dragon thingy, and they're very cool. And there's just a lot of cool stuff. It's very good. I I so wish I had the time in my life to devote to Genshin right now, because I do love it. I left off somewhere in one of the seven deserts they added for Sumeru. Um, it, they added, it just, it got overwhelming to me back then. I have not had like a place in my life to play it. I wish, I want to go back. The Fontaine stuff sounds awesome, and I'm sure it is, and that sounds great. Maybe one day, I hope so, but the, the video games keep coming, and they don't stop coming. Uh, Baldur's Gate 3 is next week on PlayStation, and I am looking forward to that. It's a lot. Yes. Well, a couple of uh, quick things with Genshin. One thing they did that I like, um, that doesn't affect me, but if there are people who want to play the game um, who are like new or relatively new, they have made it so that you can just open up um, a waypoint that gets you to where the Fontaine content is. So like, I don't think you can do the main story stuff until you do all the main story stuff that leads up to it. But like, if you want to go explore over there or you want to get the new characters and you want to be able to level them up, like they, they let you just sort of teleport over there, which I think is like a smart choice because the game is very big now. Um, and if, it, you know, like Inazuma, yes, you have to play through all of the Mondstadt and Liyue main story content to be able to get to Inazuma in the first place. Um, like, so if you got an Inazuma-based character, you wouldn't be able to level them up until you played like maybe 20 hours of story content, however long that is, all the Mondstadt and Liyue stuff. Um, and so it's nice that they added that. And there's some other just kind of cool quality of life and extra things. Um, one thing that's like, it's so kind of like, pointless but is incredibly cool they changed the way the party setup screen looks so the party setup screen just used to be all the characters like sort of against a sort of generic background and they just sort of stood there with their arms at their side they've now made it that there is like a unique background for each of the areas in the game so there's like a leeway themed one a monstat themed one so on and so forth 
Um, then all the characters have a unique animation and pose they strike when you select them for your party. So like now your party setup screen looks fucking dope because all your characters have a cool little pose and they do like a little a thing where like, you know, Raiden Shogun will like summon a giant bolt of lightning and stand there like glowing in thunder and shit like that. Um, so that's very cool. And then another thing that I think is very easy to miss, but I think is a really cool addition if you're playing on PlayStation or you're playing on PC with a PlayStation controller, they've now added gyro support for any of the aiming stuff. So if you want to be able to, you know, and you, there are a lot of like settings you can use to customize it as well. Um, like you can limit it to just being vertical or horizontal axis, or you can do it, have it be both. And there are lots of different um, like sensitivity settings you can change. Uh, but I really like that addition just because it's, um, it's a thing I wish every game on PlayStation just had the option for because it just allows you for that kind of your like big changes of aiming you're going to want to use the right stick for but for that minute I just don't need to like adjust it a bit to the left it is once you get used to it and if you've played a lot of Gravity Rush you've got used to it there or like Splatoon obviously is the same kind of thing um, you just it's like so natural to just do that little extra adjustment um, and I'm really glad that they added that but there's nothing in the game that sort of advertises that they added it so unless you were kind of following the like pre-release like patch notes stuff it's easy to miss but if you go into the options you can turn it on so I'd recommend people try that out if you haven't yet because I do think it it's very well tuned and it fits the like style of the aiming with the bow characters and stuff like that in Genshin really well yeah, that's. I'm very glad to hear that they added that because it's uh, other than Xbox, which for some reason doesn't have a gyro yet or batteries in the controller. Uh, you should. Oh, they do have batteries. You just have to buy them. Um, every game should be using fucking gyro for that kind of aiming. It's just as as an additional thing. It's very nice. It's it's kind of coming closer to having like a mouse or something uh, like on on a you know PC. And I am glad that that is there. So that's cool. Yeah. So Genshin Impact, it's still, it's still, it's still really good. You still like it? I'm glad you still like it. That's good. Yeah, I thought you were maybe falling out of love with it. No, Not really, no, <laughs> no. That hasn't, hasn't happened. I mean, it's it's all the stuff they've been adding has been really good up to this point too. It's just I have a you know at a certain point, there's only so much I can talk about it on the podcast before it becomes too much. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's see. Here's another thing I wanted to talk about, Sean. I had, uh, so like I said, my brother was in town for a week, uh, and we were just basically hanging out. But we did watch a bunch of movies. I had a stack of like 4K Blu-rays that I hadn't watched yet, and there were some stuff in theaters. So I just thought it would be fun to go through. Here are all the movies that Thomas and I watched uh, over the last week while he was here, uh, because it's a very eclectic list. And it will also give me a chance to review some 4K Blu-rays. Okay. Uh, here on the show. First off, I showed him the Super Mario Brothers movie. I picked that up on 4K Blu-ray. Uh, the new one, not the uh, Bob Hoskins movie. That does not have a 4K Blu-ray. Uh, probably for the best, to be frank. Um, but the new one, uh, the the animated movie does. It's a gorgeous fucking Blu-ray. That movie looks really good, and that 4K disc is great. The HDR looks wonderful. Uh, I didn't realize how much, like artificial film grain that movie has in theaters but it is very clear on the 4k disc kind of a weird choice considering this is a movie based on a video game where film grain is not a thing um but it looks good it's like got texture to it and it looks very nice and it's just it's fun some of the fun of that movie is like they really did like you know model every little thread on mario's cap and it's cool to see all of that in 4k but that movie is fun my brother liked that too and he was very skeptical of it but other than the stupid needle drops that shouldn't be in that movie i like that movie it's a fun movie. We didn't talk about it. Charles Martinet. He's not. Uh, he's graduating from. Oh my Mario. gosh! His last. His last Mario thing is him playing Mario's dad in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Time out. Then time out. 
Back to the news. News part two, Sean. Yes, I forgot to put this on the outline. We don't have all the details yet. From what it, it, it sounded like, based on what he said and what Nintendo said, is more like a he's retiring thing, mm-hmm. not a Nintendo is firing him thing, which uh, makes sense. He has been doing it for 30 years, and he is almost 70 years old. If he wants to take a step back, he's earned it. But that's going to be wild. There's, we've never heard another Mario voice, and that's I'm very curious. They've, they've also indicated that there will be multiple actors playing Mario and Luigi in the new game. Not just because Charles Martinet has done all of them. He's done Mario, yes. Luigi, Wario, and Waluigi. Um, so now they're going to be getting different people. I'm really curious. I'm wondering if it's going to be, you know, sort of career voice actors doing a Martinet impression. I'm wondering if they're going to be doing more of a new take on it. The I wonder how like late this decision was because this is for games that have been announced for a while. Super Mario Wonder and the new WarioWare. Um, and I'm just I'm very curious how that's going to come out. It's it's a end of an era. Jesus. Yeah, it's is crazy. I mean, I'm very curious because I like I assume that what the voice in the Super Mario Wonder trailer they've shown, I assume that is whoever is playing that in that game and not Charles Martinet. Um, Yeah. So and like because I remember at the time when that trailer came out, there were some people who are like, is that Charles Martinet? And I heard him like, I mean, it sounds like him. I don't know. I was like, I don't. Is it him? Is it a recording they already made of him 10 years ago? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, but it's, I assume if people were detecting something that sounded different, that presumably means that was whoever the new person is. Um, but yeah, it is. It's just like weird because um, he's been the voice of Mario since... 64 was that the first time mario had his i proper think voice? even earlier i think mario world has little samples and i think that's him but i would have to look that up they yeah. said mario 64 in their statement but i think it goes back even longer uh i will look this up though yeah but yeah you, obviously, you had like you know the the japanese animated mario movie that had like a talking mario that's before the it's a me mario era um so it's like you had some pre-marnet marios um yeah. Yeah. So he's first credited on uh, Mario Teaches Typing <laughs> in 1994. So, okay. Uh, Mario 64 is the first real game he was Mario in. But I got to read, Sean. Here's on his Wikipedia page. Martinet earned the job as Mario's voice at Nintendo when one day in 1990 he was on the beach and received a call from a friend who told him that there was going to be an audition at a trade show in which auditioneers talked to people as a plumber. He went to the audition at the last minute as the casting directors were already putting away their equipment. Martinet walked in and asked, can I please read for this? The directors let him audition and told him, you're an Italian plumber from Brooklyn. At first, Martinet planned to talk like a stereotypical Italian with a deep, raspy voice. He then thought to himself that it would be too harsh for children to hear, so he made it more soft-hearted and friendly, resulting in what Mario's voice is today. Martinet has also stated that he kept on talking with his Mario voice until the audition tape ran out. He says that Gremio from William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew was an inspiration for his portrayal of Mario. Uh, and apparently he started working with Nintendo in 1991 doing trade shows and then started doing the video games later on. And actually his first thing was the 1992 pinball arcade machine of Super Mario Bros, which is interesting. Crazy. Yeah, I didn't. Apparently it's, a, it's an even deeper history of Martinet in, in Mario than I thought. Um, the idea of because if you know what Charles Martinet looks like. 
the idea that he's just chilling on the beach when he gets to call to come be Mario uh-huh. is so perfect. That's just, I kind of love it. And honestly, like, so he plays a couple characters in the Mario, the new Mario movie. He plays the old, like, jump man who is, like, another plumber in the city, and he plays Mario's dad. That's a nice kind of send-off. I mean, it would be even nicer if he just got to play the character. But, um, you know, uh, they, they just, they couldn't resist the dramatic, you know, sexual chemistry of Chris Pratt. Uh, but no, uh, I, I will miss Charles Martinet. He is great. I think it will be very hard for them to escape the gravity of that voice because he defined it for literal decades. Yeah, it it is, although kind of disturbing when you're on his Wikipedia page, you go to scroll down to the video game section of the credits. And then once you get to about like 2003 or so, and you just keep on scrolling and it's just Mario, Luigi, Waluigi, Wario, Mario, Luigi, Baby Mario, Baby <laughs> Luigi, Wario, Waluigi, Mario, Luigi, Waluigi, Mario, Mario, Luigi, Wario, Waluigi, Mario, Luigi. It's just like, you know, that guy needs a break. That guy, that guy needs to take yeah. a little break. And then eventually you get down to Skyrim and he's the dragon in Skyrim. I forgot about that. He's then so it's, good in that. And then it's Skyrim. Mario, Luigi, Wario, Waluigi, Mario, Luigi, Mario, Metal Wario, Mario, Luigi, Wario, Waluigi. It's, it's oh my God. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. He, he has played those characters in a lot of games at this point. He's wonderful. They're making him like a Nintendo emeritus ambassador. This is the kind of thing Disney does with some of their old voice actors, which I I think is a nice show of respect. I do think it makes sense for Mario Bros. Wonder to be the changeover, because this is the first dramatic redesign of the Mario characters in 3D we've Mm -hmm. had in a very long time. And it's not like they look completely different, but they do. It is a very clear new character set of character designs, and their models have been pretty consistent since New Super Mario Bros. Uh, even, Even like Odyssey and stuff has been basically variations on that so yeah uh, it makes me even more interested in what the heck that game's going to be because it seems like an interesting inflection point for this series yeah and it's nice that you know it, it seems like he's just sort of like going out with the role on his own terms you know as yeah. as you say there's nothing that indicates there's anything weird about this this very much sounds like it was his choice to walk away from the role which makes sense after playing Mario, Waluigi, Wario, Luigi, Baby Mario, Baby Luigi, and so on and so forth for like 30 years or something. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot. God bless him. He, he rocks. Uh, we love Mario here. Uh, yeah, okay, so time out, uh, out. Now we are back to Jonathan's movie week. We were talking about the Super Mario Bros. movie. Okay, but that, the good 4K disc, if you like that movie, I, I just want to say again, that 4K disc is awesome. Then we watched a, a movie that is much better than the Mario movie, but has a much worse 4K disc, and that is Michael Mann's Heat. Uh, we went, this was a weird back-to-back. I mean, we didn't, we didn't literally watch them as a double feature, but one night was Mario, the next night was Heat. It was because Thomas was on his phone going through YouTube videos, and he was watching that old SNL sket, sketch that is... Um, you're a rat bastard, Charlie Brown, where it's mm-hmm. like a play in a New York theater, and it's Bill Hader playing Al Pacino playing an adult Charlie Brown. Uh, and I was like, I was watching that with my brother, and I'm like, you know, everything he's doing in this is just from Heat. And Thomas is like, what's Heat? And I'm like, oh, you're not a Michael Mann person yet. I'm going to turn you into a Michael Mann person. So that night, I had just gotten for $3 from Best Buy the 4K Blu-ray of Heat. Uh, Heat is a phenomenal movie. We yes. love Heat here at the podcast. If you don't like Heat, I think you're weird and bad. Uh, Heat is a phenomenal movie, and Al Pacino is so freaking good in it, and also crazy, uh, which is great. And so is Robert De Niro, not as crazy, but also just as great. Uh, sadly, I do have to say, if you've been seeing the Heat 4K disc on sale a lot, like I was, and I finally picked it up when it got down to, again, $3, and you're wondering, why are why is that disc on sale so much? It's because it sucks. It's just one of the worst 4... It might be the worst 4K disc I own. Um, it has 
like texturally it looks good it is the same scan from an older blu-ray just now in native 4k and so like in terms of raw detail it looks very nice the hdr grade though is completely fucked it's so aggressively dark that the movie is genuinely hard to see and my tv is good at this kind of stuff so this is not a my tv issue and also the color grade has like completely changed the palette of the movie the 2017 blu-ray also overhauled the palette a little bit made it a little more cool but this is completely different even from that it's like there are scenes that are in the daytime in heat that on this 4k blu-ray look like they are at night the entire last hour of the movie looks like it is happening on an extremely overcast day and after it finished we popped in the older blu-ray and it's like oh no the sky is just blue here um it's like completely completely different from even whatever older version of the movie you've seen you can go back and look at like scans of the trailer online it's just all of it is completely wrong there's you know the famous scene where al pacino and robert de niro are at the diner together uh pacino's face looks like gray like stone it's just completely off and i kind of felt bad that this was the way thomas saw the movie for the first time because it really sucks uh and it's too bad it does have the same old blu-ray in the package so if you have the 4k version of heat you're fine you can just watch the included blu-ray that version is fine but uh if you already have that blu-ray do not buy the 4k version it's garbage that's unfortunate you know heat heat deserves better heat deserves way better sadly it is now owned by disney it will not be getting better. Um, that is the last home video release Heat will get, and that is a bummer. The words Disney owns Heat is, like, so incredibly depressing. Like, it's just... It's, it's, a, it's a Fox fucked movie. Up. It's yeah. fucked up, man. It's fucked up. The next night, <laughs> I, I wanted... Again, I'm trying to turn my brother into a Michael Mann fan. So we watched Collateral, the mm-hmm. 2004 movie with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. One of my favorite movies ever. Visually... Maybe in like my all-time inner circle top 10 of cinematography and movies because the early digital cinematography on Collateral of L.A. at Night is just fucking pure crack. I love it so much. And that 4K Blu-ray is perfect. Now, you have to understand, Collateral is a movie shot on like a mix of 35mm and old like DV, like early digital cameras, kind of like the stuff like the Star Wars prequels were shot on. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all at night and there's intentionally a lot of noise in the image. But, so you're not necessarily getting like more texture out of it because the movie's resolution is locked at a at a lower level but it's resolving all of that digital noise and some of the grain on the film parts much better than any former version i've seen and the hdr pass is just on point all of the darks and blacks are like very deep and you know inky and exactly how you want them but then all of the lights and there's so many light sources in collateral are popping perfectly it really 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 makes me want a miami vice 4k disc because miami vice might be the only michael mann movie that looks better than collateral uh and that would also benefit from these things um we've heard some chatter that there might be a miami vice 4k disc from 88 films in the uk but that was like two years ago and it never materialized so i don't know um i think miami vice is warner brothers so maybe at some point but who knows um if it were disney we would never get it uh but but maybe we'll get it uh collateral though get that 4k disc that is the good stuff and also tom cruise in that movie is my mm-hmm. favorite flavor of tom cruise fucking ever jamie fox is so good i love the moment on the train at the end where tom cruise yells i do this for a living and then he gets shot in the chest that movie fucking rocks yeah the collateral kicks all kinds of ass 
Yes. I showed it to specifically because, you know, we're, I think the whole world is on a different, uh, different forms of a Tom Cruise kick right now um, between Top Gun Maverick and the new Mission Impossible and all sorts of things. But if you've never seen Collateral, he is a hitman with gray hair. It's one of the only times he's played an outright villain. He is like definitively the bad guy of that movie. And it is so good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, speaking of Tom Cruise, we did watch the 4K disc of Top Gun Maverick, which I had. That might be the best 4K Blu-ray uh, of all the ones I've seen. Um, it's just, it's incredible. It's the IMAX version of that movie, so it's all the expanded aspect ratio stuff, which is done better than any movie I've ever seen, in part because it's actually constructed so that there are no aspect ratio shifts within scenes, just between certain scenes. Um, and once it shifts, it doesn't have cuts back and forth. And the IMAX stuff in 4K... I mean, this is stuff they shot on these, like, state-of-the-art 6K cameras actually in the air. The amount of detail you are seeing, like, every fucking little pockmark on the inside of the cockpit's glass that you're seeing the outside through. It just, at a certain point, it doesn't look like you're looking at your television. It feels like you are just in the cockpit with these characters. I mean, it looks as good as it did in some of the theaters I saw it in. It's a tremendous 4K disc. Awesome. I still have not seen that movie, so I should probably pick that. 4k disc up because I, I that's a movie that i always meant to go to the theater to see um but i just never got around to it so yeah it is too bad you missed it in theaters but i will say if you've got a good enough tv that 4k disc will get you a good amount of the way there it is it is that good and it is the like best version of the movie so you should absolutely pick that up there's a there's a there's a two-pack that also has the original top gun on 4k i have that set i haven't watched that 4k of the original top gun i bet that looks very good too though because that's also a good looking movie for its time Let's see. Uh, the last 4K disc we watched was John Wick Chapter 4. Jesus oh, yeah. Christ, that's that's my movie of the year at the moment. Maybe something better will come along, but oh my God, that's just one of the best fucking movies ever made. That 4K disc is immaculate. Like, the way the John Wick movies are shot lend themselves very mm -hmm. well to 4K HDR to begin with. Um, but, like, the fourth movie in particular, everything it's doing with light and color, the all the stuff in Germany in the middle is incredible with the rain and all the neon lights. And then, of course, the entire last hour in Paris. Um, it's it's such a good movie and it's such a good disc. I'm really glad that exists. There's some fun bonus features too. Just like there's a whole one just everyone talking about how much they like Chad Stahelski and Keanu Reeves, which is nice. I like that every time you see behind the scenes on John Wick, everyone's happy and uh, safe and like no one's actually getting hurt making these crazy movies. It's good stuff. Yeah, I have the first three movies on 4K Blu-ray, so I need to pick up the fourth one now um, because I rewatched those on 4K when four was in the theaters before i saw that and yeah those movies they are they like it feels like they are shot for 4k blu-ray in some ways i mean just like the way it's, it's specifically the hdr because of the way that they use color um particularly from two onwards um like one still has a lot of good color stuff but it's not quite as doesn't go as far with it um right. but yeah they look fucking uh pristine Yes, absolutely. So all of that, great stuff. Those were all the movies we watched at home. We did go over to Film Scene, our local uh, nonprofit theater here, twice for two classic movies. One, the Park Chan-wook movie Old Boy is in theaters again now in a new 4K restoration. Uh, it's not like in every movie theater, but it's in a couple hundred across the nation, and you should go see it if you never have. Old Boy is great. I will say, if you've seen, you've seen Old Boy, right, Sean? Yes. I, I got about halfway through Old Boy, and I looked over at Thomas, and I realized, 
I did not adequately prepare him for this. I did not. <laughs> There's just a camera realization about halfway through the movie, and I and I and I knew what was coming. I'm not going to spoil it, but if you've seen Old Boy, Old Boy is about as dark a movie as exists. Oh yeah. In, if if you're talking about how fucked up something can be, and like not based on an actual history, you know, uh, there's a different kind of darkness if you're watching something like Schindler's List. But if you're talking about like fiction, it, Old Boy's about as fucked up as it gets. Um, and I just, it, it kind of hit me. I'm like, I don't, like, I didn't, Old Boy is a movie you need to warn people about before they watched. And I really just told him, this is a great South Korean movie. And it just hit me. I'm like, a great South Korean movie can mean a lot of different things. Uh-huh. It doesn't have to mean Old Boy. Uh, there aren't that many movies like Old Boy, even for Park Chan-wook. Uh, yeah. Uh, I had fun with it. It was great. I still, Thomas hasn't really talked about it. I think I traumatized <laughs> him with that one. I don't know what he really thought of that movie. Yeah, I'm just very excited to see him eat the fucking octopus live or whatever in fucking 4K. <laughs> yeah, it's a good looking restoration. It's done well, by the way, in limited release. This is Neon put this out. Um, and it's already made more money in this 200 screen limited release than it did back in 2004 in America, which is cool. That makes um, sense. I know. mean, yeah, it's like kind of yeah. like a cult hit at this point. Right. Um, and it just it just shows you how much the market has changed. That, like mm-hmm. there's much more of an audience, not just willing, but excited to go see foreign films uh, and particularly Asian films in the theater where there really wasn't in the early 2000s yet. Uh, but yeah, it's it's cool. It's in theaters. There's an introduction from Park Chan-wook with it that is very funny where he is like slyly. Uh, he's like he has all these lines like if you love octopuses. Maybe don't watch the movie. And I thought that was very funny, uh, but my brother didn't know what that meant yet uh, because he hadn't seen the movie. Does your brother love octopuses? I, I don't think like he has any particular affection, but if you're not at least a little disturbed by the scene where he eats a live octopus, you're probably messed up in the head. So, yeah. Do you think that there's any theater that's doing a double screening for uh, Old Boy and Old Boy? Uh, the, Spike, the Spike Lee old boy with Josh Brolin. Do you think there's anyone that's doing a double feature of those two? Have you actually seen that version, Sean? No. I watched it because I wrote about both of these as part of my uh, comprehensive examinations for my PhD because they're an interesting sort of transnational remake. And that it's transnational both because the original movie became big as a cult hit in the States and then it got this Hollywood remake. The thing about the Spike Lee version is that it is both very faithful and completely misses the point. Um, almost like in the way like Zack Snyder's Watchmen is very faithful and completely misses the <laughs> point of the book. Uh, it's fucked up. The other thing that's interesting about the Spike Lee old boy with Josh Brolin is that it is way more graphically violent. The Korean film, most of the like graphic things happen off screen. Mm-hmm. Like when he... Spoiler, cuts his tongue off at the end. You don't actually see the, like, scissors going through the flesh. It happens. You, like, see his eye bulge, and it's that kind of stuff. And it feels very visceral, but you're often not looking at graphic violence. The Spike Lee one is just all you see. You see those teeth come out of the dude's mouth. You see the tongue, all of that stuff. I don't think he actually cuts his tongue off in that movie, but all the graphic stuff happens. But the movie is all sort of, like, shot and edited much more conventionally. And so it feels way more normal and less dangerous, even though it is, like, visually more violent. Because what makes the Korean film feel so fucked up is the way it is shot and edited Mm -hmm. in this very subjective, uh, kind of, like, anti-realist way where it feels like kind of a nightmare. Um, And the ending, it's not even clear if we're actually seeing real events at that point. 
Uh, and I mean the, the end ending where he's like talking to the hypnotist again and all of that stuff. Because the, the American remake also drops all the hypnosis stuff, which I think is a weird choice to make with Old Boy. Uh, and it tries to make it all more quote unquote realistic, which is not the point of fucking Old Boy. Not a realistic story. Anyway, I don't think any theaters are doing uh, double features, and they shouldn't. Uh, the Spike Lee Old Boy, to be fair to Spike Lee, that movie got 40 minutes cut by the studio, and he kind of he did his equivalent of taking his name off it. It's the only Spike Lee movie that is not called a Spike Lee joint at the beginning. He took that out because he was mad at them. Uh, so who knows? If, if we had the full cut of that movie, if it would be any more interesting, as it stands, it's very bad. Yes, but I also feel like the, like, era of we make the remake of the korean movie is kind of gone like as you're saying yeah. like you can just put that movie out over here and it will make money um enough of an audience parasite was huge you, yeah. no one's doing a parasite remake thank god yes maybe maybe yes. maybe maybe the you know the clock will come around again and the time will come where like you know what what if we just made a worse version of this movie but we put americans <laughs> in it what if what if we did that Surely we can make surely that too will be a cinematic masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, speaking of cinematic masterpieces, the last thing we watched was a film scene had My Neighbor Totoro on 35mm. I have not seen a good proper print of Totoro since 2012. And uh, it was so nice seeing my boy on 35 again. Such a gorgeous print that they had. It's It might have even been the same one I saw 10 years ago. I think it's G-Kids had new prints made back then from Ghibli in Japan and had these. And I think they've been keeping them in distribution ever since to theaters that are able to show them. This was specifically an event that was also like aimed at kids. So they were showing the dub of the movie, the Disney dub, which I had never watched before. It's actually a really good English dub. I'm very glad that that movie of all anime should have a good dub because it mm -hmm. is a kids-ass kids movie. Um it, Tim Daly is the dad in that one and he's the <laughs> voice of Superman yeah. and he's really good he like really gets the humor that that dad is very kind of slyly funny with his daughters because he knows they're giant goofballs and Tim Daly does that well um, Pat Carroll the recently um, deceased voice of Ursula from The Little Mermaid plays like the old woman in the village who takes care of the girls she's fucking great it's one of those Disney dubs that made use of like the genuine voice talent Disney yes. had access to, not like just a bunch of stars, but because also the two girls are Dakota and Elle Fanning, who were become were big child stars in that era um, and are very good at what they did. And so that was like a very naturalistic choice for them. Um, so that was fun to see. I, I would not normally watch a Ghibli dub um, because I don't need to as an adult. I can read the subtitles and I like it more that way. But when I, when I do run into them, they've generally been pretty good. And that one is one of the better ones, definitely. So that was cool to see. Yeah, and apparently uh, Frank Welker of I mean he's played every every character ever. I always whenever I see his name, I always think of Megatron, which is appropriate yes. for Totoro, and he's also the most disgusting character ever put to film, the cat bus. <laughs> the thing I really do like Frank Welker as Totoro. The way he does it though is he's much more animalistic than the Japanese Totoro. Like he really does like the big animal growls, and it's fun. It's it's a different take on obviously Totoro doesn't have words but he still has a lot mm -hmm. of like sounds he makes and of course if you're doing a dub Frank Welker's the guy you get uh, I mean there's the obvious question do you need to dub Totoro I think the age of that movie means they probably had to replace the whole voice track and that's why they didn't just keep Totoro's voice because there are other Ghibli movies where you have non-vocal characters that they didn't replace like Spirited Away no face is the same voice in Japanese and English but I assume they had access to like the actual stems to do mm -hmm. that with the dub of that but anyway Frank Welker is Totoro totally good how is he as cat bus? 
totally fine. Uh, Catbus has less to say. Um, and But they did keep the sound effect when Catbus's skin opens up for them to walk in. Is this is, at some point, we need to do the actual Totoro episode so Sean can do his rant on how viscerally disgusting he finds Catbus. I've never heard this from anyone else, but Sean is, is adamant about this. I mean, I find it... I find... The notion that other people aren't grossed out about the idea of walking <laughs> inside of a cat and the cat's inside being like the cat's outside and you're like sitting in it and you put your hand on this little like sort of like like little fleshy appendage that's the fucking like window well. It's like what the f- it's just fucked up. Nice. <laughs> imagine right. what it would feel like. Just imagine it. <laughs> Imagine, imagine putting your hand on one on the inside and then reaching out through the window and putting your other hand on the outside and just like pushing. Just imagine that. It's disgusting. It would be warm and fluffy and beautiful. What would the, how would the cat feel about it? What's even in there? Where's its organs? You know, how does it live? Catbus, Catbus smiles very broadly when he opens up his skin and the kids yeah, get in. I think Catbus likes it. Yeah, listen to that sentence. The cat bus smiles broadly when it opens up its skin and the kids crawl inside. Fucking pervert. <laughs> All right, Sean, I'm my talked... kids. <laughs> you don't have kids, neither do I've I. Got, I've got like 114 year olds, okay? I'm not letting them get on that fucking cat bus. I am imagining you now, like, as at, in front of your classroom at high school, just ranting about cat bus to your students and them all just looking very worried. No, they're all they're all just nodding along, and some of them are taking notes. Um, yeah, it's, it's like collect the handout, kids. It's like I've, okay, so in the lecture, I've I've cut out some of the major words, so you need to make sure that you're spotting those and you're filling in the blanks on your sheet as we talk about the heinous cat bus. All right, uh, I just talked about a bunch of movies. Do you have any other stuff to talk about, Sean? Um, I have one other game. I can't talk about it a lot because it only came out a couple of days ago, and I've only played maybe about two hours. I haven't had a lot of time to play it. Um, but Armored Core Six: The Fires of Rubicon has released. Uh, this is the new From Software game. Um, that is the new Armored Core game, the first Armored Core game, in, I think, like ten years or something. It's been a long time. Um, I've never played any of the ar- other Armored Cores, but I have ever since I got into um Gundam played a fair share of other like mecha style games like like Virtual On um the Gundam versus games Gundam versus and Gundam Extreme versus Maxi Boost On I think is the name of the PS4 other PS4 one um as well as like a random assemblage of other like Gundam Breaker 3 other games like that um so I've got some experience of mecha games but I'm not like a super mecha game guy um this game so far fucking kicks ass again I'm very very early um I'm still in chapter 1 um, and I feel like I've only sort of like barely scratched the surface of what the game is doing. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it do, it's worth like pointing out if you're someone who's into Dark Souls, don't just necessarily get this because you're into Dark Souls, right? It's, it is not a Dark Souls style game just because it's made by From Software. You can see that there's like a similar core philosophy of like it's, it's a very kind of hardcore game in its fundamental design. And there's some like bits and pieces like the UI um, is Dark Souls-esque in the sense of you go in and you can press a like button and you can make an, a UI that looks like reasonable on the stat screen. And then it's like, oh, there's like 10 times as many stats on this as I realized if you go to the <laughs> detailed view. And then you can press a button that then gives you a little cursor that you can go through each individual stat and get a paragraph of description of what it does. So it's got some DNA in common, but it, it is very much a mech game through and through. Um, but it is incredibly fun. Um, you know, it is... It, it 
I'm trying to think of how to describe it. So it it feels old school in its in its design philosophy in the sense of I have not seen a human being in this game yet. All the story is delivered entirely through voiceover. You have a guy, this your handler Walter, um, who has I have the voices are on Japanese and his voice is fucking really good. I've not it's not a voice actor I'm familiar with, but he sounds fucking great. Um, uh, there are some other voice actors that I know, like Megami Han is in it, um, also from uh, Final Fantasy 16, but she plays the like AI in your mech, which is cool. Uh, but you're, you're just getting like radio transmissions from these people who just do voiceover for you, which makes it sound like a PS2 game in a great way where you're not seeing human faces. I've not seen a single human being in the game so far. Um, the story setup of the game is very broad. Um, I don't know anything about the Armored Core lore. I assume it is connecting to things from the other games um, in terms of the world building. But basically, you are some sort of mercenary-type figure who you are going to this planet called Rubicon. Rubicon is a planet. And there's a resource on there. I think it's called Coral, which I think is like really there's is very rare at this point, And you need it for a lot of the advanced technology in this world. And like Rubicon is like one of the only places in the world, in the galaxy or whatever, where you can still get this, this resource. Um, and there is a group on there that's like the Rubicon Liberation Front that is trying to protect it. Um, and there are all these different like mercenary groups and various corporate interests that are all trying to get access to it. And you are basically a free agent mercenary um, who is just taking various odd jobs from all these different kinds of clients with a, like, I don't know if Walter has a like higher objective in mind. It's very sort of like vague and shady. Um, but so far it feels like your character is just, hey, I'm here for some fucking money, man. Like I'm a good pilot. I've got a mech. I've got an armored core. Um, I'm going to go down here and I will do jobs for whoever is the highest bidder. And it is a very like grimy, just dark kind of fucked up setting in a way that's really great. Um, and if you like some of that kind of, it's very corporate. Like it feels like, I, it kind of reminds me a little bit of a like a darker version of a witch from Mercury in the sense of you're getting all these different like corporations with these names that all represent these different sides that are trying to sort of one up one other one another and they're all trying to use you for their own aims like at the end of one mission a guy comes on the radio who was part of the group that hired you and he said basically like yeah man we were we we were we were using you to like we thought you would die on this mission. Like we thought you were going to get a certain part here. You'd get killed. And then we come up and mop the rest, but you fucking killed, you beat the boss and you won the thing. And will, you'll be hearing from us again. We're very impressed um, and stuff like that. And so it's very, um, it's a very compelling uh, setting. If you like this kind of mecha stuff, but again, it's delivered in this very kind of oblique way. Um, that's very removed and very kind of like cold, but I think adds to the overall presentation. And the gameplay itself is fucking great. Uh, if you've ever played a mecha game like the Gundam versus games or anything that kind of stems from the virtual on games from back in the nineties, um, it plays generally like that. It's very much about your like managing your movement and the cooldowns on your weapons and stuff and trying to time your shots. Um, the levels are um, like pretty short overall. Most missions are like three to five minutes long. Um, they're kind of like really like get in, get out. You've got a single objective to go accomplish. Um, some of them are as simple as here is a squad of sort of like kind of very weak mobile troopers or MTs. Um, that are you're, you take a couple of shots and they die. Um, some of them are like, okay, here's a rival ace pilot that is another armored core that has similar ability sets to you. And that's like a more like, 
I got to be very careful how I time my shots and like manage my distance and figure out what weapons they have. Oh, he's got an energy sword and a cannon. I got to dodge the cannon and like manage this kind of middle distance to stay away from the sword and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then some of them, there have been a couple like very big scale missions, like one where there is a giant walker um, that was like this giant walking oil platform thing that is gigantic fucking gigantic like it's huge and you have to blow up one of its legs to get it to collapse you jump and like fly up onto it you have to destroy a bunch of batteries that will destroy a shield around this giant laser cannon it's called got called the eye and you have to blow up its laser cannon the whole thing explodes and it's fucking great because the scale of it is ridiculous and again i've only played like a dozen missions so far so i assume like there's a lot more variety to future missions but so far every mission has felt very different um, and then you do your mission, you come back, you get your money from that mission, you unlock some new parts in the store, and then it is the kind of game where you are spending as much, if not more, time in the menus managing your, like, mech and customizing it and coming up with how, like, you want to put your stuff together as you are actually doing the missions. Like, that customization part is as big of a part of the game um, in a way that reminds me, for me, of Gundam Breaker 3, which is the only other game I've played quite like this. Um, and this has even more customization than that. I have only barely scratched the surface of the customization, but they've just like introduced some stuff in the last mission I played where um, you can have, you know, your default armored core is bipedal. You can have a quadrupedal one, which has like a whole uh, hover mode and its entire movement set is totally different. And if you want to make the fucking like gun tank from Gundam, you can get fucking tank treads and you can just drift around on tank treads and have giant cannons <laughs> and shit. And like the way the weapons interact with the different mobility options are all different so it's like the more legs you have or tank treads the more heavy weapons you can have and fire them while you move whereas if you have a giant cannon but you're rocking around on stimpy little two legs well then you have to like stop in place and stand there to use those big heavy weapons and so you're really considering tweaking okay how much do i want to be able to boost like consecutively versus how quickly do i want my boost to recharge so it's like do i want to be able to like boost really quickly in short bursts and then have it regenerate really quickly or do i want my guy to just be able to fly constantly just be hovering but then once my energy bar runs out and i hit the ground it takes a long time for it to get back um like you have to manage your ammunition uh you you one thing i love is you get deducted from your pay at the end of each mission for how much damage you took and how much ammunition you have used so if like if you oh, want to <laughs> maximize your profit you want to you don't want to be wasting shots right um and it's you know it's not super severe in that way it's like i've never done a mission and i like lost money because i used too much ammo or something but it's something in the back of your head and when you and you can replay missions as much as you want and keep getting money from them and you can kind of and they score you on how well you did and so if you want to get like an s rank score you got to make sure you're not getting hit and you have to be like conservative and efficient with how you use your ammunition um and there's there's just so much shit like you can put um, you have one weapon on R2, another weapon on L2, and then you have two shoulder weapons on R1, L1. And you can swap those in and out. So you can have like, I want to have two swords on both my arms. I want to have a rifle on one hand. I want to have a sword on the other. I want to have two just machine guns and just blast at the enemy and just fire machine guns wildly. You know, I want to have two rail guns. I want to have two shotguns. I want to have a rail gun and a shotgun. 
Um, and then all kinds of, I want a shield on one shoulder and a missile pod on the other. I want one missile pod to be just like a huge number of cluster missiles and another to be a giant guided missile. I want to have plasma weapons because they're energy weapons versus kinetic and they have different attack properties. So again, and I have barely, in terms of gameplay, engaged with those systems. I've only sort of seen that they exist and flirted with them briefly. So I haven't like sort of gotten into the depths of it yet. Um, but it's clear that there is a lot of depth here and a huge amount of variety um, so much so that it is almost a bit overwhelming. Like, I think I've hit a point in the game where I want to, like, stop, replay some old missions, try out different mecha builds before I move forward, just, like, to sort of, like, get my, the lay of the land because it, it has a lot of sort of technical gameplay stuff, especially if, like me, you've never played an Armored Core game before. I assume if you've played the earlier games, like, that you're like, oh, yeah, of course you have the quadrupedal one that can hover. Um, I, When they unlock that, I'm like, what? Oh, okay, I didn't realize <laughs> that you could have more than two legs. Okay, holy shit, that's that's a step beyond what, like, the Gundam Breaker games did. Um, and that's and it's very cool. And then just the, you know, so that's all the technical stuff, but the feel of the game is immaculate. It feels so good to play the the way that they use like graphical and sound effects and dial in the controls to make your mech just feel like so heavy and mobile at the same time it's just it's that thing of this kind of mech game again it goes back to the virtual on series where it's so much about you're managing your kind of thrust in these different versions of like boosts at different speeds and stuff um, where you have your walking speed, you have your hover, like boost mode speed, you have a dash, and then you have a like full, I'm turning on all my engines and just gunning it. Um, and so you're kind of managing all those different movement options. Um, and you feel very um, agile, but also like, you know, when you your boost runs out and you hit the ground, you hit the ground hard, right? When you're paralleling at an enemy, you feel the mass behind this mech. And it's so good at executing on the fundamental fantasy of this kind of mecha action um, in gameplay form. And all the little bits and pieces are dialed in so well. Like the weapons feel huge and impactful. Um, like the sound effects are just super fucking heavy. Whether you're using the like the Vulcan machine gun style things, or I have a big fucking rail gun and I'm charging up a shot and just blowing up like three things in a row with one giant shot. Um, every little piece of sound effect is so well designed for that. And, you know, having a thousand missiles shooting through the sky because I've launched all my missile pods at once. Um, and that feeling when you're you're destroying a bunch of like, you know, no name fucking scrubs and then another enemy in, a, in an armored core that is like as strong as you are and has the same kinds of moves that you do, obviously customized differently shows up. And then it's, you know, it's kind of like when you're playing a Dark Souls game and there's an invader, but it's it's that to like 11 because of the amount of customization, how different the armored cores can play. So the first time you play a mission and one of them show up, you're just like, okay, what the fuck did this guy do? Like, especially for me, since I haven't seen most of these parts yet, it's like, okay, I didn't know that that was even a weapon that existed or that was a thing that these things could do yet. Um, and you're kind of learning from all the different enemies you're fighting. And then when you blow them up and you get a little voice thing come on the comms, it's like, no, no, how is this possible? And then they blow up and then your handler, Walter dude, comes on the radio and he just very grimly is like, good job, 621. And you just go through and it's like, return to base. And, you're, and you just boost up and it fades out and mission completed. And I got 60,000 credits because I fucking murdered these dudes. Uh, it's great. Uh, I'm having a great time with this game. It looks awesome. I have to admit, I was I thought this game was like coming out way later. So the other day I saw like the ad for it, I'm like, oh that's out that's like out today. 
I really wanted to play this. I do not have the time for it at this exact moment, and I need to make myself finish Final Fantasy 16 before anything else. But man, I do want to play it. I do. I am. I haven't like pre-ordered it yet. I am planning to pick up Baldur's Gate 3 because I've been really excited for that one, mm-hmm. uh, and that's coming out on PlayStation. I know everyone's been enjoying it on PC and everything. Uh, but yeah, it's, it actually is kind of cool that Baldur's Gate 3 and Armored Core 6 are coming out in the same month. There feels like there's a very like synergy between those kinds uh-huh. of like extremely fiddly detailed games but they're both Baldur's Gate 3 has been a huge hit it seems like Armored Core 6 is getting more attention than those games have ever gotten in the west so that's pretty cool yeah it's definitely like two kinds of games you haven't seen for like 10 years you know like yeah. you know that old like choice based western RPG that like has been mostly gone for a long time yeah, but yeah, Armored Core 6, it's really good. You can also, you know, I just talked about all of, like the gameplay stuff you can do with the customization. It's worth also saying like every armor piece has like five or six different sections of it that you can put, make different colors and you can change the texture and make it metallic and reflective or like super matte or rubbery. Um, and you can change the weathering on it so you can make it look super fucked up or pristine. You can put mud all over it and you can do that for all your different pieces. One thing I love, they let you save custom color schemes. So like you can go and people online have, if you want to like, oh, I want a color scheme that looks like the EVA 1 color scheme from Neonjus Evangelion, or I want one that looks like this Gundam or like a Sharzaku um, color scheme. Like, people have gone on and do, done that, and you can just, you know, it's clearly the Armored Core franchise has a very active community. Um, and then if you want to go crazy, there's a whole decal system with stickers that you can put on um, that you can make your own custom stickers. And I've already seen some wacky shit online of people like making a Gundam face with sticker decals and putting it on and like coloring their their armor core like a Gundam and putting a Gundam face on the head to make it look like a Gundam or like picking on like a random anime character and stick it and making a face that looks like it out of decals. I believe you can upload those and download them from other users online. I haven't done that yet. So obviously you can you can try to make something that looks very cool or you can make something that's totally ridiculous but the amount of visual customization on top of the gameplay customization is incredibly deep and so that's part of the you're honestly spending more time fiddling with your mech than you are actually using it part of that is just trying to make it look cool and playing with all the different colors and stuff so if you want to play action figures like this is the best action figure game i've played in a very very long time that's awesome yeah and uh it's it sounds like that's what was what was promised so Uh i am glad that it delivered (laughs) yeah the armored core people seem very happy like i'm having a great time with this game but all like the you know the armored core people online who have been like you know chomping at the bit for another game either like another armored core game or just another game like this that isn't you know that isn't gundam extreme versus maxi boost online plus or whatever you know um that's just like whether it's armored core or another franchise this kind of mecha genre has been very barren for a long time um and all those people who are like super hardcore mecha game people are having a blast with this online so it's clearly it is hitting them as well as it's hitting newbies pretty well because i know it is like at least on steam where we have data like it has blown up the closest record for any game like this by like a hundred times or something ridiculous i mean it's because it's it's not at um like uh elden ring levels but it's at like dark souls 3 plus in terms of like it's concurrent users on steam so yeah yeah that's crazy especially just considering again like (laughs) from soft this this is not you know like the dark souls games but it is like in the broad genre of like you know very hardcore um and it's cool how that you know sort of translates across genre it's interesting 
Yeah, it is currently the 10 most played game right now on Steam with 98,096 current players. So it has almost 100,000 current players right now, with like, which is crazy for a game like this. Um, like Grand Theft Auto V right now has 118,000. So this, That's wild. Yeah, Armored Core 6 is, at least on PC, it's blowing up. And I only assume that PS4 is doing, slash PS5 is doing even better. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Uh, anything else before we call it a day, Sean? Uh, I think that's it for me. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a crazy amount of Genshin Impact and doing school stuff, and then the past like I mean, basically just yesterday was me just playing a lot of Armor Core Six. Yeah, that sounds fun. Um, all right. Well, I don't know when we will see weekly stuff, listeners, again. Maybe in two weeks or so. We're not going to be able to do one next week. I think the weekly stuff. Just is not going to be super weekly for a little bit here. We'll see what we can do. We've got a lot on the list of things we want to do. I know we promised a Shin Kamen Rider episode at the end of our Shin Ultraman discussion. We both want to do that at some point. It's just a, a, a busy time and, you know, uh, something's, something's got to give a little bit. And I do think Japanimation Station is taking up a little more attention, especially because this next season is going to be so big and exciting. But we hope you're we're hearing you over there. Uh, and of course, keep in touch. Tell us what you want to hear. Maybe we'll make some stuff happen. And uh, thank you all for sticking with us. Yeah. So yeah, as you're saying, like weekly stuff will be a little bit more intermittent for right now. While we're we're both doing work stuff and doing Japan Animation Station, like work and two podcasts simultaneously weekly <laughs> is is too much to do at once. So, um, but yes, like weekly stuff is not going away. It's just it'll be a little bit more inter- intermittent for the next bit here. All right. Uh, Any famous last words for us, Sean? Good job, 621. Return to base.